Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 6. And for those of you who are new to our fellowship, we welcome you. And to let you know that for several months now, we've been looking at the book of Galatians. And today, we will finish our consideration of this great epistle from the pen of the Apostle Paul in the heart of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be looking at verses 11 through verse 18 of Galatians chapter 6. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible and ask you to follow in whatever version you have with you today. Galatians 6:11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may be boasting in your flesh. But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. During the fall of my sophomore year in college, 1969, I got my dream job. You may understand why it was my dream job when you know prior to that I'd been working for minimum wage, which, by the way, was an astounding dollar and 60 cents an hour in 1969. Can you imagine? And I was offered a job and immediately took it with the U.S. Postal Service, and I became a mail handler. And I had this big increase. Now, just do the math from 160 to 283 an hour. That's a big jump in terms of a percentage increase. And I was so excited because I had in my mind that by the following summer, I would like to propose to my girlfriend, who did, in fact, accept the proposal. Sally Craig became Sally Woods, accept the proposal. And I worked hard to save the money. I remember through the example and advice of several of my friends, I went to a local jeweler. His name was Fred Pankey. I remember very clearly. Mr. Pankey was a reputable jeweler in town. He was a certified appraiser. So any gem that he would sell, he would then give you a document which authenticated that that particular diamond was legitimate. So I got my money together. I went over probably sometime in August because it was in August that I proposed to my then girlfriend who became my wife eventually. And I remember when I went to look for the diamond, I had something in mind. I wanted a solitaire and I wanted something that would impress my then girlfriend. And so Mr. Pankey laid some diamonds out on one of this little velvet kind of whatever it was, and he gave me some sort of deal. I don't know what it's called, but it's like a magnifying glass. It was on one eye. I'd always seen this in the movies, and it was not quite as impressive when I looked through it. And he said, this is a marvelous gem. It is practically flawless. There is one little flaw in there. Can you see it? 
and I couldn't tell anything about anything looking there. And I said to him, yes, sir, I see it. I lied right there. And I said, how much will it cost me to buy this diamond, Mr. Pankey? And he said, $1,100. And I said, very well. I pulled my checkbook out. I'd saved my money over the last seven or eight months, and I was able to pay for it. I was one proud person that day. And we were, as I mentioned, engaged. My lovely wife liked the ring. She wore it. And about three months later, a news story came out in the Commercial Appeal, our paper there in Memphis, saying that Fred Pankey had been arrested by the feds for fraud. And I thought, oh my goodness. Then I learned that his nickname was Hanky, Mr. Fred Hanky Panky. I should have investigated that more fully before I bought that ring from him. I had the certificate. It's authentic. But fortunately, my wife, I don't know if she ever learned that story. I kept it a secret. From her. When Paul is writing this letter, he's concluding it. In verse 11, he says, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. The Apostle Paul was accustomed to concluding his letters with a similar approach. In the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, he writes, I, Paul, writing with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark of every letter, semicolon, this is how I write. And the point being, he did not want any forgeries to be foisted upon those churches to whom he was writing the word of the Lord. And in this particular case, remember, it's generally agreed that Galatians is the first of his 13 epistles, which we have in our Bibles, which he wrote. And therefore, he is writing with large letters. And the reason probably is because of the argument against the authenticity of his apostleship, which the false teachers who were stirring up Jack in the church there at Galatia were doing. He wanted them to be sure, and they argued against the fact that he was a true apostle. Therefore, they were arguing against his gospel, which is and was and always will be the gospel of God is the way it's described in the book of Romans. He wanted to be sure that these people knew he was indeed God's spokesman. And what they had received in the book of Galatians was God's take on God's gospel. Remember that these false teachers, who are known as the Judaizers, made this statement. It's recorded in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. This is what they said. They said, you have to be circumcised to be saved. That's what they said. And this flew all over Paul. And it flew all over him because it was leading people in the wrong direction. With that as an introduction, if you will look back at two verses in chapter 5, we've looked at these in detail a time or two already, but I'd like to revisit them for the last time before we leave this great book. Paul writes in Galatians 5.16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. In this point, in this great epistle, Paul contrasts the flesh 
and the Spirit. He goes on to say in verse 17, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And of course, the Spirit is properly capitalized in our translations. It's a reference to God the Holy Spirit. The flesh. Now remember what the flesh is. If you flip the word around and you lop off the H at the front, what word do you have? It's the word self. The flesh is my unsurrendered self. I have not surrendered fully myself to the Lord. Myself is my personality apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit of God. And the flesh in my life and in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, sets its desire against none other than God the Holy Spirit. And none other than God the Holy Spirit sets His desire against the flesh. Now, we know who's going to win that battle. None of us is a match for the Spirit. But in our foolishness, even in our redeemed persons, we tend to fight against the Holy Spirit. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you do not do the things that you please. There are two simple statements that I'm going to state at the beginning and do my best to properly interpret as we look through the rest of this part of the book of Galatians. The first one is this. The flesh always draws attention to itself. That's the first statement. The flesh always draws attention to itself. The second statement is, the Holy Spirit always draws attention to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit always draws attention his attention, or puts his attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin with the first statement. The flesh draws attention to itself. Look at verse 12 of Galatians 6. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Well, let's ask and find an answer to the question as to why the flesh draws others' attention to itself. Here's why. It's because this phrase, those who desire to make a good showing, literally means this, those who put on a good face. Now, do you remember when Jesus took the Pharisees who were very legalistic to task, how he addressed them? He invariably called them hypocrites. And do you know what the term hypocrite literally means? Literally, it was a word which came from the theater of the day. The Roman and the Greek theaters, the plays. And they would not have a vast cast of characters represented by individuals. They might have several characters, but it was very common for more than one part to be played by a single individual. And when the person would change parts, the person would have a mask which he or she would place in front of himself or herself. And then when that person changed characters, would put up another mask. That's what a hypocrite is, someone who puts a mask on. And these people were intent upon putting on a good face in order to make converts to their way of thinking as far as how one is saved from their sin. Look at one more time at verse 12. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. 
This word compel is a strong word. They couldn't make the Galatians be circumcised, but they were your religious flim-flam people. They were hucksters. They were very persuasive. And they put the pressure upon these new believers to add to the work of Jesus. Now, I need to pause here for just a moment and make this observation about these false teachers. They did believe and they did teach that Jesus Christ died for the sins of mankind. They did. In addition to that, they did believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. They did not deny that part of the gospel. But what they did, they added to the work of Christ, saying we must do something in addition to what Jesus Christ did for us when he died and was raised from the dead. And they were intent upon gathering converts to themselves. In Matthew 25, verse 13, Jesus gives this scathing denouncement of the scribes and Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to see if you can make one convert, and when you convert that individual, you make that person into twice the son of hell that you yourselves are. Jesus didn't mince any words about this, did he? trying to add something to the work of God. Now, these false teachers had a kind of religion that is characterized, even to this day, there are examples of this in churches all over the world. Their kind of religion has these two aspects to it. First of all, it's outward. Secondly, it's by human achievement. It's outward. Think about circumcision. It's an outward sign. That's all it is. It's a sign. And without the inward reality of a relationship with God, it's meaningless. It was the sign of the covenant that God commanded Abraham and his offspring to have to identify them as those who had their beginning by the grace of God and through whom the world would be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. Here's another thing about their religion. In addition to the fact it's outward, it's by human achievement. It was done by the hands of man. Now, what does that have to do with us? It has everything to do with us because we need to be on our guard against this kind of religion. It easily begins to seep into our way of thinking and consequently in the way we behave. And the first thing which comes to mind would be possibly this group of false teachers who had probably come from Jerusalem. They would send reports back to Jerusalem and say, in answer to a question which they perhaps had received from the headquarters in Jerusalem, we have five new circumcised members in the churches in Galatians. They had resorted to what might be called the egotistical, ecclesiastical approach, which says, I measure my success by the number of converts I have, and I want to trumpet that all over the place so people will know that I am a successful spiritual leader. This happens in churches that call themselves Baptists. It goes by the name Baptisms. How many baptisms have you had? 
And I want to be sure that I don't offend the Lord in saying this. And I don't want to be misunderstood by you. Baptism is also a sign. But baptism is outward. It's not inward. The circumcision of Abraham and those who truly followed Abraham's example. He is the prototypical man of faith. Is that they were not simply circumcised in their bodies. They were circumcised in their hearts. This is why in Romans 2, 28 and 29, Paul talks about how he is a true Jew who is not one outwardly, but he is a true Jew who is one inwardly who has had his heart circumcised. In other words, his heart has been radically changed by the Holy Spirit of God. These people were people who were teaching that sort of thing. It's just circumcision. Baptism. Baptism is a sign. You know what it's a sign of? It's a covenant. But it's a sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, the Bible says, All of you were baptized in the Spirit. When you were believed, you were baptized into the body of Christ. So our outward baptism is a sign of the inward conversion which has occurred in our lives not by the achievement of man's hands, but by the achievement of God's Spirit. God is the one who does all the work. Jesus Christ, when He died on the cross for our sins, His body was beaten. It was bloodied, pulverized horribly. When Christ died on the cross, He did everything which was necessary for our salvation. The cross of Christ... The work of Jesus is about an inward work and a divine work. Well, look again at our passage in verse 12. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, and it gives why? Simply that they may not be persecuted for the Christ, cross of Christ. Do you know throughout the history of the Christian faith, people have been Persecuted intensely for preaching the cross of Jesus Christ, for refusing to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something that we need to understand. And these people were afraid of people from the headquarters, the people that they really looked up to, people which they were trying to please by making converts whom they compelled to be circumcised. Because they knew what had happened to certain of the followers of Jesus Christ, beginning with Stephen. What happened to Stephen when he stood, stood before the Sanhedrin and told, told the history of Abraham and then told them how the people of Israel were responsible for the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we know what happened. Stephen got stoned. And then we know what happened to a man called James. James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, what happened? He had his head lopped off, cut off because of his following Jesus. And the result was there was this great dispersion of believers all over the Mediterranean world. There was persecution which followed. And these cowards, if you will, wanted to preach a message that was non-offensive. The cross is offensive 
It's foolishness, Paul says, to the non-Jewish person. The very idea that a man hanging on a tree somewhere could be the Savior of the world. Ludicrous. But it was equally, if not more foolish, in the minds of those who were Jews. Because Paul describes the cross as a stumbling block to the Jews. And the word translated stumbling block, perhaps you know, in the original language sounds like this. See if you can identify a word or a family of words in English borrowed from this Greek word. It's the word scandalon. It's scandalous to the Jewish person. And we've seen why from Galatians 3. Because the Bible says in the book of Deuteronomy, cursed is every man who is hanged on a tree. Where was Jesus killed? On a tree. And they said this is impossible because cursed is every man who is hanged on a tree. But they didn't take the process in terms of the logical conclusion one more necessary step. Yes, Jesus was hanged on a tree. Yes, Jesus was cursed. Yes, Jesus was cursed even by God, His Father. But He did it because there had to be a payment made for sin. And that payment was not any longer able to be given through the blood of bulls and goats, but through the sacrifice of the sinless, blemishless Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, wherever the preaching of the cross takes place, the result is that people who follow the Christ of the cross, His disciples, are persecuted. And these men did not want anything to do with that. They wanted to preserve themselves. And this is something that's true of the flesh. I've seen it in my life to the point it just makes me sick to think about times when I have cowered and I have done things or not done things or said things or not said things to protect myself. I could not help but think about the encounter that Jesus had with his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. It's recorded in all three of the first three Gospels. And as he's interacting with them, Mark tells us he asks them, Who do people say that I am? You remember his answer that he received from them. They said, some say you were Elijah. And others say you were John the Baptist. But he says, who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter, who was really the spokesman for the group, he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say? He gave him a high compliment. He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. The Lord God Himself has revealed it to you. And then the next thing Jesus does, He begins to unfold what's going to happen to Him. How He's going to be mistreated. He's going to be vilified. He's going to be persecuted. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be killed. And then three days rise from the dead. And the text tells us that Peter came over to Jesus and he drew Him aside. And the Bible says... He began to rebuke Jesus. Can you imagine? He didn't just say one thing. The language of the text would indicate he continued to get on the case of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Christ was watching the reaction of the other disciples. 
And he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind on the interests of men and not the interests of God. What is the interest of man? What was Simon Peter trying to get Jesus to do? To back away from the plan of God, which was our salvation. And in so doing, he was preserving himself. It's man's way, it's the flesh, to take care of ourselves, to preserve ourselves, rather than to identify with the Lord. In John chapter 12, verse 42, the Gospel writer says this about a group of people who fall into this category of self-preservers. It says, even though they knew Christ, they preferred the praise of men more than the praise of God. Because they would not share the fact that they were followers of the Lord. These were people who were part of the governing body, the Sanhedrin of Israel. And yet, that is something that we have to wrestle with. Perhaps you have, like I have over the course of my Christian life, wanting the praise of men instead of the praise of God. How hypocritical that is. And these individuals were certainly hypocritical. Look at verse 13. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. Here they are out here trying to make converts, and they've gone all over the world to do it if need be. They travel from Jerusalem to Galatia, and that's a big jump from Jerusalem to Galatia. They went way out of their way to make some converts there for sure. But these people were hypocritical. They didn't even keep the law themselves. Now, we draw attention to ourselves in many ways, just like these people did. And as we read from Luke chapter 16, verse 15, the Bible says Jesus spoke to these Pharisees who were lovers of money, and he said this to them, You are the ones who say about yourselves that you are trying to justify yourselves. You're trying to justify yourselves. And we know how they did it. If we look at Matthew chapter 6, we see they tried to justify themselves in the way in which they gave money to the poor. They would hire a band, brass band, to lead them from their place of residence to the synagogue to give their alms. And they would have them play all the way from wherever they lived to the place of giving their alms to the poor. In addition to that, when they would pray, they would stand on the street corners and pray loudly so people could hear their long and pious prayers. And Jesus said when they would fast, they wouldn't wash their faces. They might even dirty them up a little bit. And then they would not anoint their heads with oil so that people would know how much they were suffering for their Lord and what they were doing. They loved to wear long robes Jesus says, in the marketplace, to be noticed by other people. They want the head seat at a banquet so that all eyes would be trained upon them. And in the synagogue, they took the seats right up front so everyone could see. Why? They wanted the attention. That's the flesh. And if you and I have the inclination to have people... Look at us, pay attention to us, 
honor us, then we are giving in to the flesh. And we need to repent of that. We want others to think and speak well of us. Listen to what Jesus says about that. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's not too nice, is it? For Jesus to pronounce a woe on anybody is not a good thing. He said, woe to you because their fathers before them treated the false prophets the same way. John Stott says it's not possible to be faithful and popular at the same time if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. This does not mean that we go out and we are in people's faces, right? We just follow Christ. Did Jesus ever get in people's faces? Not that often, but he was, did not shy away from it when the occasion required it. He spoke the truth, always spoke the truth. He was truth personified, and he spoke the truth in love. Even when he was seeming harsh, it was motivated by love, no doubt. Well, let's go into the second part. The first thing is the flesh always draws attention to itself. The second thing, and this is where we really want to listen carefully, is the Spirit of God draws attention always to the person of Jesus. In John 15, 26, Jesus says this, I will ask the Father and He will send to you another Helper. That is the Spirit of truth. When the Helper comes, who I will send from the Father, He says. He's involved in this sending of the Spirit as well. The Spirit of truth, He reiterates that. He will bear witness of Me. Do you know what the M.O. of the Holy Spirit is? To bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you and I, if we are filled with the Spirit, if we're walking in the Spirit, we're not going to draw attention to ourselves. Rather, we're going to draw attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to love Him. And it will be seen in the way we treat people. But more than that, it will be seen in the way that we respond to people. If perhaps they would ask us to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And interesting, the word translated answer there in the book of First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Listen to it. It's the word apologia. The word from which our word apology comes. The word from which our word apologetics comes. An answer for the hope that's within us. The conference that we have an opportunity to participate in on the 7th and 8th of April. A tremendous conference will further equip us so when we live this life out in a loving, joyful, peaceful manner, in a good and kind and gentle manner, in a self-controlled manner, when we live that life out, people will ask, why are you the way you are? We'll have an answer for them. We'll be able to step out like 18 of our people did yesterday, going into the community, going door to door. One team came to a door, knocked on the door. They asked, we are here to share good news with people and to give them a light bulb as a token of the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. Something simple like this, we want to give it to you. And we know that people need prayer. So is there anything we can pray for? And the lady who answered the door said, yes, we've been waiting on you. Come in. And they found out that this woman who greeted them and her husband lived with her mother and this woman who greeted them had a dream on Friday night 
that the Lord was going to send someone to their house to pray for her mother that day. What did this three team of three do? They just went. And they were available to the Lord. And they were willing to represent the Lord. The Spirit of God led them there. The Spirit of God had preceded them. Who gave the first witness to that family? It was the Holy Spirit who gave the first witness. And there they were right behind giving yet another witness. This is important for us to understand that Jesus in that passage in John 15, 26 does not merely say that the Spirit bears witness of me, but He said, you too will bear witness of me. If we have the Spirit of God living in us and He's controlling our lives, if we're walking by the Spirit, what we can be sure of that He is going to bear witness to Christ through us. Especially to the work of Jesus. The cross in the resurrection. Now, I'm not going to spend enough time probably talking about the cross, but if you listen carefully, you'll get the gospel. In three sayings, maybe four, of the seven sayings which Jesus pronounced when he was on the cross. This is the first one I would like to draw your attention to. He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember that? It's a quotation, a messianic prophecy written by none other than the ancestor of Jesus, David, in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was Jesus simply quoting that so as to let the people who were witnessing his crucifixion realize that he, in fact, was Messiah? Well, that had to be part of it, but it was not the major part of it because, as you recall, when Jesus makes that statement, there was this... Darkness which came over the area. And interestingly, it was impossible to have a solar eclipse at that time of the year. Meteorologically impossible because of the position of the moon in reference to the sun. So there was this miraculous darkness. And the reason that Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason that it was totally dark is this. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And God said through the prophet Habakkuk, My eyes are too pure to look on sin. In other words, I can't have anything to do with sin. And the Bible says in the book of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, God the Father made Jesus the Son to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. So what happened when Christ was on the cross? This is exactly what happened. God the Father did forsake Jesus. Had Jesus ever known a moment in His existence as a human or as God? He predated history. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He had never known an instant. We don't even have the vocabulary to try to describe what He would have been like in eternity. He had never known any time in His existence that God was not His Father. It's the only time that Jesus is recorded as not addressing God as Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, Jesus knew why. That's why he wrestles so feverishly in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know why he had such a hard time? Well, he was going to the cross. Awful, hideous, hideous. But the bigger problem for him was, he says, if it's your will, I will drink this cup. He was referring to the fact the cup is representative in the Old Testament 
of the cup of the wrath of God. I will drink all your wrath, Father, which you have restrained yourself from pouring out on sinners. I will take it all myself and I will drink it to the very last drop. And Christ did that, in fact, during that time of darkness, three-hour period. That's what Jesus did for us. He took all the punishment that was reserved for you and for me upon Himself. Talk about love. Unbelievable. Then Jesus says a bit later, I thirst. He spoke on two levels. The obvious level would be having been brutalized as He had been with the scourging followed by the crucifixion itself. Jesus was dehydrated. He was dying of thirst physically. But on a more fundamental level, He was thirsty for the relationship with His Father. And when you think about this, somebody in this room, I don't know who it would be, I have no one in mind, but there's probably at least one, probably many people who are thirsting after fulfillment in your life. And you've tried virtually everything, relationships, achievement, acquisitions. You've tried just about everything you know, maybe religion, but you're still thirsty. Jesus says, because I thirsted, you don't have to thirst anymore. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And you will have your thirst satisfied. You will thirst no more if you come to me. Jesus says, it is finished. The next to the last thing that he said on the cross, it is finished. Meaning I have paid in full. Not just some of your sin, I paid it all. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ Jesus, our Lord, paid for all of our sins. Phenomenal to think about this. You see why the Holy Spirit spotlights the passion of Christ? When you look, if you begin to calculate the percentages of the Gospels which are devoted to the last week of Jesus' life, it's mind-boggling. A third, at least, of the Gospels is devoted to the last week of Christ's life because it's so critically important. It's the Gospel. It's God's work, right? It's not man's achievement. It's God's work. And we are saved by grace through faith and none of ourselves, lest any man should boast. The Spirit draws attention to Jesus by turning those who have trusted in Christ's work on the cross and resurrection alone, the work of Christ alone for their salvation. They have become new creatures, new creations. The Lord has changed us. This is prophesied hundreds of years by the prophet Ezekiel. He speaks on behalf of God. And this is what God says through the prophet in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. He says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. The Spirit of God is the one who gives life. Jesus said it in John 6, 62. It is the Spirit who gives life. Jesus talks about it in John chapter 3, where He says, unless a person is born of the Spirit, 
he or she will not enter the kingdom of God. We have to be born from above, born again. And the Holy Spirit is the regenerating God who does that in our lives. We're new creations. Look at verse 15. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That phrase, new creation, should ring a bell for many of you. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Bible says, If therefore, if any man or woman is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The identical words are used by Paul under the leadership of the Holy Spirit in both 2 Corinthians 5.17 and here in Galatians 6.15. A new creation. The old has passed away. What that would refer to is the old man, that part of us that is fleshly. And the new has come. Who has come to live in us? Who is the new person? The new person in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. What do you not know that your body is a temple to the Holy Spirit who is in you and you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. The Holy Spirit has given us renewal. And that renewal is what enables us to draw attention to Jesus and not to ourselves. Blessed relief when, hey, man, I'm, one of the things I'm going to like about dying, it's about the only thing I'll probably like about it. <laughs> Heaven is going to be awesome. I had nothing to do with my being admitted into heaven when the time comes. God did it all. But I won't have to deal with my own selfishness anymore. It's the thing I long for more than anything else. So it's not about me anymore. It's all about the Lord. And we should move in that direction, and we can. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And as He controls us, He moves in our lives to enable us to obey Him, to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's look at verse 14. This is key right here. This is awesome. But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now this would have been a shocking statement to those who first heard it or to anyone who heard it in the time of the Roman Empire because of the horror of crucifixion. It would be like saying, I'm not going to boast in anything except lethal injections. I'm not going to boast in anything except the electric chair. I'm not going to boast in anything except the gas chamber. I'm not going to boast except anything but lynching. That's how shocking it would have been. And all of those forms of execution, none is nice. But crucifixion trumped them all. It's the most wicked most awful form of death that has ever been devised by men. And that's what Jesus Christ went through for us. And Paul says that he was only going to boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's another thing that would have been shocking. The second thing that would have been shocking about it is the exclusiveness and the narrowness of his thing that he was going to boast in. How many things did he boast in? One thing. What was it? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 something very similar. He says, When I came to you, I did not come with wise and persuasive words, 
so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. He said, I came to you in weakness and in fear with much trembling. And I resolved when I came to Corinth that I was not going to boast about anything while I was with you except Christ and Him crucified. That's shocking. So what does this mean, really? Well, in Galatians chapter 2, we've seen, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. He's talking about two eyes. I am crucified with Christ, have been crucified, actually is what it means, and nevertheless I live. Sounds like he's schizophrenic, doesn't it? I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This I over here, this I is gone in terms of its potential influence. It's exhibited in our lives through the flesh when we give in to the flesh rather than trust the Spirit of God to guide us. But over here there's this new I. And it's the I that is the new creation. That's what Christ does for us. Look, you and I do not have to be people who are dominated by sin or the flesh or the world or the devil because we are men and women, if we know Jesus Christ, who have, as he says here, have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to us in Christ. Verse 16, he says, And those who will walk by this rule. And what is the rule that is referred to here? Well, I believe it has to do with walking by the Spirit. Everything really that begins at verse 16 down to here. But also it would include that if I boast about anything, it's about the cross of Jesus. Now, how does that work? Here's how it works. When I come to know Jesus... I come to realize that despite the fact that I have thought there's a lot I could do on my own, that was a bad understanding of life, especially since I've become a Christian. Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. And every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And my ability to make wealth, if I have any ability to make wealth, guess who gives it? Deuteronomy 8, 18 and 19, God gives the power to make money. And everything we have comes from the Lord. Everything we have belongs to the Lord because of His having redeemed us. And we understand that if we boast, we boast in the cross of Christ. But it's through the work of Jesus that we came into this relationship of restoration to what God wanted man to be to begin with. We want to see what real manhood is. Look at Jesus Christ. Adam blew it. We're descendants of Adam. But in Christ... We are new people, and we have the power by the Spirit of God to overcome ourselves. Blessed power. Paul suffered, didn't he? He speaks of it in verse 17. He says, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me. What he's really saying is, don't ever call my apostleship into question again. I'm done talking about it to you. And he goes on and says, For I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The word translated brand marks has been variously interpreted. But when we see the way in which this word was used in the 
other pagan religions around that time. This word was used to describe religious tattoos. It was customary among the mystery religions of the day that followers of certain gods and or goddesses would have the impression of that god or goddess tattooed upon themselves. So Paul was tattooed. Now, that's not an excuse for you to go out and get some kind of tattoo. That's between you and the Lord anyway. But what this would indicate is Paul had some brand marks. Do you remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11? Beginning with verse 23, he said, Five times I was whipped with 39 lashes by the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. One time I was stoned. And probably he's referring to the time he was stoned in one of the cities of Galatia where the church had found root, that being the city of Lystra. He had been stoned, left for dead in a ditch. He'd been beaten mercilessly. He had been lashed to the nth degree. It was said that 40 lashes would kill a man. Paul underwent it five times. He was willing to suffer for Christ, not to make points for Jesus, not to make points with God so that he could get closer to the Lord to be more loved by God. It wasn't that. It was because he followed Christ. And all those who wish to live godly in Christ Jesus, because of their identification with Christ, will suffer persecution. Well, let's think about this as we finish. The measure of my devotion to Jesus Christ is not my speech, but it's my suffering on his behalf. Paul says in Philippians 3 that he wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And we stop there usually. He goes on to say, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Paul wanted that. By this time, he was already experiencing it. He'd had a lot of it, but he wasn't finished. He said, I want to know. He says a little later in that passage, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So Paul was a man who knew trouble. He knew the marks of Christ upon him, the brand marks. He belonged to Jesus. And he was following the Lord. The measure of a person's devotion to any cause, good or bad, is the depth of suffering that person is willing to undergo for that cause. We have more than a cause. We have a person. And he's our king. And he's marching forward. And he's called us to follow him. As we follow him, God uses us, and sometimes people will abuse us, but it will be something we can endure because of the Lord's power in our lives. Verse 18, as we finish this book, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, brethren. Amen. So let it be. We know we're saved by grace. Thank the Lord, right? We didn't do anything to merit our salvation. But we ignore a very important aspect of grace. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, So you then, my son, be strong in the grace 
that is in Christ Jesus. Where does our strength for living this life come from? It comes from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus lives in us, if I'm not mistaken. That's what the Scripture says. And I have that witness being born in my own heart that He lives in me. And this is what the writer of John says in the introduction to the book of John. He says that Jesus is full of grace. And He doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, And of His fullness we have all received. So if you know Jesus Christ, He's in you. He's not part way in you. He's all the way in you. And all the power that you need for living the Christian life is not in you. It's not in your cleverness. It's not in your riches. It's not in your strength. It's in Jesus Christ alone. And that's the message of the Gospel. That He has come to save us and He has secured your salvation and mine. In closing with this one statement from the book of 1 John, when the Scripture says that we have an advocate with the Father when we sin, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, who has become the propitiation, the place of the satisfaction for the wrath of God for our sins. Would you bow your head? Have you trusted Christ for your salvation? Would you say today that you know for sure that you have eternal life? That if your life were to end today, you would go to be with Him? Well, if you're not sure, today's the day of your salvation. Would you just pray to the Lord in your own way and say to Him, Lord, I need You. I am selfish. I do know that my sin puts you on the cross. And I'm so grateful, though, Lord, that you were willing to die for me. And I want to give you my life. Not just part of it. Lord, I want to give you all of it today. I want you to be my king. And I would love to be your servant. Thank you, Lord. Amen.